0: Section 4 of Arthur Wing Pinero Playwright This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Arthur Wing Pinero Playwright A Study by Hamilton Fife Section 4 Farce The Squire, like the money spinner, suggested that mr pinero's talent would develop upon the lines of the serious drama but for this development we had to wait a good many years until the production of the prolificate in fact in eighteen eighty nine the interval however was thoroughly well occupied it brought forth what many good judges still hold to be the most characteristic fruit of the author's pen between eighteen eighty five and eighteen eighty seven were produced at the court theater the three farces the magistrate the schoolmistress and dandy dick that gave mr pinero at once a leading place amongst the dramatic writers of the time in eighteen eighty nine followed the cabinet minister and eighteen ninety three the amazons constructed on much the same lines in this delightful series of farces and in the Savoy operettas, we have the only two original dramatic art forms which England can claim to have evolved during the nineteenth century. As regards all other forms, we have followed. Here we lead. When he wrote this series of what we may call the court farces, Mr. Pinero recreated the farce of character. The farce of intrigue had, in eighteen eighty five, long held the stage unchallenged mr pinero had tried his own hand at it before he hit upon his later vein of pure ore in this kind the author's figures are but puppets who move according as he pulls their strings the plot has them in an iron grip they do not build up the story on natural lines as they go along they are merely dolls used for the convenient presentment of some one comic idea there are no surprises no sudden turns of merriment in the farce of intrigue you see exactly how it will reach its appointed end just as you watch a train coming smoothly along upon its appointed set of rails switching off correctly at the points and turning awkward corners with easy assurance in the rocket and in chancery mr pinero's puppets were more lifelike than most but they were really no more than lay figures cleverly constructed for the purposes of a ramified plot his later work was very different in the court series the characters are astonishingly actual they live and move and have their being quite apart from the demands of the plot indeed they themselves and their idiosyncrasies are the plot it was a bold experiment to set about amusing audiences which included so many admirers of magistrates and deans and cabinet ministers and schoolmistresses by showing them these high and mighty personages in absurd and undignified situations and by turning upon them the highlights of satire and ridicule Yet this was the leading motive of each play, to make fun of various types of modern character by creating real people, exhibiting them in their actual surroundings and making them act in a highly improbable and yet just possible way. It required a great deal of wit and a great deal of tact to do this without arousing annoyance and resentment. Both ingredients were supplied by Mr. Pinero in just proportion his wit made everyone laugh and when you can make people laugh they cannot even if they would continue to be angry with you when you hear complaint that a playwright has made fun of this or that institution the church or the law or the army or marriage or divorce it simply means that he has not been funny enough or that he has been funny on wrong lines mr pinero had both wit enough to be genuinely funny and tact enough to keep him upon the right lines the dean and dandy dick for instance is so real in essence and so unreal in action that no one could be offended he is a real person but he is doing for the moment what a real person would never do this is one of the conventions between the writer of farce and the spectator the characters of farce should be as real as their creator can make them but they must not act as real people would act if we could imagine an impecunious dean suddenly discovering that money could be made by betting upon horses commissioning his butler to back a horse for him making a bran mash for the animal in his anxiety that it shall run well administering it himself and then being arrested on suspicion of trying to poison a starter on the eve of a race if this were really the playwright's suggestion the only play to be made on such a theme would have to be a very serious play almost a tragedy in fact but in this case it is the very incongruity of the idea that sets our minds at rest and upon this basis of incongruity mr pinero built up each of his famous farces no magistrate we know would allow his larky stepson to take him to a fast supper and gambling establishment just about to be raided by the police no schoolmistress we know would spend her christmas holidays figuring as a queen of comic opera no cabinet minister and his wife would be likely to act as sir julian and lady twombly act it is highly improbable that any dean would behave like the dean of st marvel's however much he wanted money for his cathedral spire yet of course it is just possible that any of these things might happen we can just imagine it and that is where the fun comes in when people behave on the stage as considering their characters they could never by any possibility behave in real life they fail to awaken our interest this is what weakens melodrama and all plays based on a purposeless sacrifice or an idiotic refusal to take a natural straightforward course but we can all be interested in improbable incongruous actions so long as they are logically led up and so long as we know that the playwright is enjoying the joke too the persons in farce then should act always in character they may do improbable things but they must not do altogether impossible things the immense superiority of mr pinero's farces to others even of their kind lies in his observance of these rules and in the solidity of his central characters he has drawn them with so sure a hand that they remain real people in spite of the unreality of their actions they would never behave as they do but they do it so naturally that we are almost convinced in spite of ourselves m i know has defined farce as the spectacle of a human will striving towards some end and meeting with some obstacle such as the irony of chance or ridiculous prejudice or a want of proportion between means and end but then m brunetier bases his whole theory of drama upon what stevenson called the struggle between adverse wills coming nobly to the grapple Qui nous demandons au theatre, c'est le spectacle d'une volonté qui si déploie intendant vers un, but et qui a conscience de la nature des moyens qu'il y fait servir. Thus, when the obstacles to a human will are insurmountable, as destiny, providence, a law of nature or a grand passion we have tragedy when there is a chance of overcoming the obstacles as in the case of a strong social convention or prejudice or a passion not quite of the grand order we have drama or romantic drama when two adverse wills conflict one with the other we have comedy and when as i have already said the obstacle to will is found in the irony of chance or ridiculous prejudice or a want of proportion between means and end then according to m brunetier's classification we have farce it seems impertinent to offer to disagree with so eminent a man of letters but i cannot help thinking that so far as any rate as comedy and farce are concerned m brunetier's definition scarcely covers the whole ground comedy according to mr george meredith is a game played to throw reflections upon social life now there are ways of throwing reflections upon social life which are not based altogether upon a conflict of wills and there is also a certain farcical incongruity of which m brunetier takes no account Apply his test to the pinero farces, it does not comprehend them at all. They are a form of drama quite outside its scope. May we not say that there is a distinct form of farce which is based entirely upon incongruity and arouses merriment by appealing to that sense of the unfitness of things which lies so near the root of humor. The difference between comedy and farce, then, is i would submit this comedy shows us possible people doing probable things farce shows us possible people doing improbable things thus the school for scandal is comedy she stoops to conquer is farce the relapse trenches upon farce the comedy of errors is farce the country wife is farce while love for love and indeed all congreve's plays may justly be called comedy put it another way and we get almost the same result comedy depends more upon wit farce more upon humor comedy keeps us smiling farce sets us on to laugh and this is done with the greatest success when it is founded upon some incongruity which is seen at once by all the world to be an incongruity of course there are farces which depend upon wit rather than humor such are the plays of mr bernard shaw and the earlier plays of captain marshall these would be comedies if the characters were possible people mr shaw's wit is so spontaneous that he almost persuades us his characters are real but really they are only so many mr bernard shaws in disguise captain marshall's creations are a little more lifelike but his wit on the other hand is more mechanical he brings forth things new and old out of a well-stored notebook too often his fireworks seem to have been left out in the rain then again there is the farce of intrigue and lately to that has succeeded the farce of misunderstanding these as a rule depend neither upon wit nor upon humor but upon a large number of doors and upon the rapidity with which the actors are able to get through their lines in neither kind is any attempt made to draw character or to display the fruits of observation or even to make fun of the passing follies of the hour they are born old-fashioned they leap from their author's brains fully armed with japes which have done service so long that the mind of man runneth not back to the contrary thespes must have joked so in his cart and the clowns of an earlier age have clowned it not otherwise of the two orders i think the farce of intrigue is preferable here there is really something to be concealed the husband really has deceived his wife the young man has actually married the cook or the artist's model in the other there is no reality at all the whole thing is a mistake no one has done anything wrong at all and you wish all the time that someone would be sane enough to say so and end the play but they do not even pretend to be sane they are merely impossible people doing impossible things mr pinero then brought back to life the farce of character the farce based upon incongruity, the farce which shows us in the most light-hearted and entertaining fashion possible people doing improbable things. To understand how witty and observant these pieces are, how genuine the humour which inspired them, they need to be read as well as seen on the stage. Any one who can read them without being amused must be like Mr. Fraser of Lochin, who had never learnt to laugh and then consider what unspeakable torture it would be to be obliged to read the ordinary farce or light comedy which passes muster with the average audience of the first three farces dandy dick is i should say the best considered all round the character is more developed and riper and the situations grow naturally out of the idiosyncrasies of the dramatist personae the magistrate is perhaps more mirth-provoking but the fun is more forced than in dandy dick there are signs here and there of a determination to get a laugh at any cost and when you come to think it over the idea of the young man nearly twenty passing as a schoolboy of fourteen is not very delicately worked out there is no need to dwell upon this but i cannot help feeling that sis farringdon's relations with his mother's friends and maid-servants might have been touched upon if it was necessary to touch upon them at all with a lighter hand however this affects very little of the play which is full of uproarious humour from beginning to end it is interesting to observe that charlotte verinder is as it were a first sketch of the inimitable george tidd in dandy dick you see it in this very funny conversation between charlotte and her sister mrs poskett in the first act agatha now we can tell each other our miseries undisturbed will you begin charlotte well at last i am engaged to captain horace vale agatha oh charlie i am so glad charlotte yes so is he he says he proposed to me at the hunt ball in the passage tuesday week agatha what did he say charlotte he said By Jove, I love you awfully. Agatha, well, what did you say? Charlotte, oh, I said, well, if you're going to be as eloquent as all that, by Jove, I can't stand out. So we settled it in the passage. He bars flirting till after we're married. That's my misery. What's yours, Aggie? Agatha, something awful. Charlotte, cheer up, Aggie. What is it? Agatha, well... ''Charlie, you know I lost my poor dear first husband at a very delicate age.'' ''Charlotte, well, you were five and thirty, dear.'' ''Agatha, yes, that's what I mean. Five and thirty is a very delicate age to find yourself single. You're neither one thing nor the other. You're not exactly a two-year-old, and you don't care to pull a handsome. However, I soon met Mr. Poskett at Spa.'' ''Bless him.'' ''Charlotte, And you nominated yourself for the matrimonial stakes. Mr. Farringdon's The Widow, by bereavement, out of mourning, ten pounds extra. Agatha, yes, Charlie. And in less than a month, I went triumphantly over the course. But, Charlie, dear, I didn't carry the fair weight for age. And that's my trouble, Charlotte. Oh, dear, Agatha undervaluing aeneas's love in a moment of i hope not unjustifiable vanity i took five years from my total which made me thirty-one on my wedding morning charlotte well my dear many a misguided woman has done that before you agatha yes charlie but don't you see the consequences it has thrown everything out as i am now thirty-one instead of thirty-six as i ought to be it stands to reason that i couldn't have been married twenty years ago which i was so i have had to fib in proportion charlotte i see making your first marriage occur only fifteen years ago agatha exactly charlotte well then dear why worry yourself further agatha why dear don't you see if i am only thirty-one now my boy couldn't have been born nineteen years ago and if he could he oughtn't to have been because on my own showing i wasn't married till four years later now you see the result charlotte which is that that fine strapping young gentleman over there is only fourteen agatha precisely isn't it awkward and his mustache is becoming more and more obvious every day charlotte what does the boy himself believe agatha he believes his mother of course as a boy should as a prudent woman i always kept him in ignorance of his age in case of necessity but it is terribly hard on the poor child because his aims instincts and ambitions are so horribly in advance of his condition his food his books his amusements are out of keeping with his palate his brain and his disposition and with all this suffering his wretched mother has the remorseful consciousness of having shortened her offspring's life charlotte oh come you haven't quite done that agatha yes i have because if he lives to be a hundred he must be buried at ninety-five the schoolmistress is wilder farce than either the magistrate or dandy dick but the wit of the dialogue and the neatness of the characterization remove it far away from anything like the rough-and-tumble variety of comic drama vere quickett is a genuine creation there is much more of him in the piece than of the schoolmistress herself who unless mrs john wood had played the part would have been almost a secondary character but vere would make up for any number of shortcomings the contrast between the immense pomposity of his sesquipedalian verbiage and the utter insignificance of his person and character is delicious his description of the small lark pie which was ordered for eight persons is irresistible the pie is architecturally disproportionate his excuse for fibbing could not be improved upon a habit of preparing election manifestos for various members of my family may have impaired a fervent admiration for truth in which i yield to no man as a foil to vere we have admiral rankling the man of action the admiral who is distinguished in the surface because his ship has never run into anything the man of few words who in reply to the letter which tells him of his daughter's engagement telegraphs from walton the single word bosh peggy hesleridge the articled pupil is a delightful little creature every line of the part recalls with pathetic force the personality of miss rose norris sheba in dandy dick was another character which this young actress played with delicious humor the scenes between the dean's daughters and the eccentric officers who make love to them are a long way below the rest of the play both in versimilitude and in humor but miss norries carried them off triumphantly by the dainty charm of her art the dean himself his sporting sister george tidd sir tristram Marden, and the butler blore are each perfect the constable and his wife are scarcely less when you think of the magistrate, your memory goes back to situations, to the raid on the gambling establishment or the confronting of the unlucky Mr. Poskett on the bench with his wife and his sister-in-law in the dock. When you recall the schoolmistress, it is the laughable ingenuity of the imbroglio that chiefly occurs to you, the piling up of misadventures and misunderstandings, and the gradual closing of the net around poor Quicket but in dandy dick it is the people themselves whom we remember and over whose peculiarities we smile the plot we almost forget but the characters stand out clear and distinct in recollection they are like people we have known rather better than we know the most of our acquaintances in real life the whole play coheres so admirably is all so much of a piece that one can single out no particular scenes for special commendation it is the general effect that leaves its impression upon the spectator's mind yet i should like to quote one scene both for its own sake and also to establish the relationship between charlie verinder and georgiana tidman sir tristram marden and george tid have just succeeded in rescuing the dean from the ferocious village constable noah topping georgiana but oh tris marden What can I ever say to you, Sir Tristram? Anything you like, except thank you, Georgiana. Don't stop me. Why, you were the man who hauled Augustine out of the cart by his legs, Sir Tristram. Oh, but why mention such trifles, Georgiana? They're not trifles. And when his cap fell off, it was you, brave fellow that you are who pulled the horse's nose-bag over my brother's head so that he shouldn't be recognized sir tristram my dear georgiana these are the common courtesies of everyday life georgiana they are acts which any true woman would esteem gus won't readily forget the critical moment when all the chaff ran down the back of his neck nor shall i sir tristram nor shall i forget the way in which you gave dandy his whisky out of a soda-water bottle just before the race georgiana that's nothing any lady would do the same sir tristram nothing you looked like the florence nightingale of the paddock oh georgiana why 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 won't you marry me georgiana why sir tristram why georgiana why because you've only just asked me tris sir tristram but when i touched your hand last night you reared georgiana yes Triss, old man but love is founded on mutual esteem last night you hadn't put my brother's head in that nose-bag mrs john wood was of course thoroughly at home as georgiana but the part is not one that plays itself as so many of mr pinero's women's parts do miss ada rehan was not a success in it in america and when dandy dick was revived in nineteen hundred at winham's theatre miss violet vanbrugh failed to get into the character the right touch of good-hearted loudness which is mrs wood's particular gift three years after dandy dick came the cabinet minister another triumph for mrs john wood another popular success but not another comic masterpiece like its predecessor it is scarcely in accordance with the formula of possible people doing improbable things we might accept as possible the secretary of state who plays the flute and allows his wife to do the most desperate things in her efforts to escape from money entanglements we might accept lady twombly with an effort but joseph lebanon one cannot regard as anything but a stock figure of low comedy he is extremely funny but he is never for a moment convincing his sister mrs gay luster the pushy fashionable dressmaker is much more real a low-class money-lender with social ambitions would not behave as joseph behaves accompanying social ambition is always some faint idea of social conventions the vulgarian who likes to tell long tedious tales about his own vulgar exploits has no fancy for what mr lebanon excuse his humor describes as the top of the social tree where the coconuts are the very fact of the existence of social ambition implies an instinct however rudimentary for what matthew arnold called fit and pleasing forms of social life and manners Mr. Lebanon has no such instinct, therefore his anxiety to cut an eight on the frozen lake of gentility has no apparent motive, not even the desire to advance his financial schemes at the expense of his aristocratic acquaintances. No, Mr. Lebanon is not observed freshly, but taken for granted, and he ought not to be taken for granted because, off the stage, he does not exist the rest of the characters beyond the four mentioned merely serve to fill up spaces the cabinet minister is a play that can always be counted upon to amuse but it goes no further than that vastly better in every way is the amazons produced at the court theatre in eighteen ninety three and written after the second mrs tanqueray apparently by way of relaxation mr pinero's art gained greatly even in the writing of a farce from his more serious effort to offer criticism upon life the cabinet minister was loosely planted in the topsoil of character its relation to life was of the smallest the amazons has its roots deep down it is founded upon eternal principles of human nature in a jesting manner it brings us face to face with realities there is more insight into the heart of things in it more sympathy with the beating heart of humanity than in any of the farces mr pinero had given us before it take the scene quite early in the play in which lady castlejordan tells the old family clergyman her life's sorrow lady castlejordan you knew jack my husband minchin ah yes indeed lady castlejordan what was he minchin a gentle giant a grand piece of muscular humanity in frame the vikings must have been of the same pattern lady castle jordan and you remember me as i was twenty years ago minchin looking at her i've no excuse for forgetting lady castle jordan i was a fit maid for my husband minchin perfect lady castle jordan even in jack's time i never scaled less than ten stone and he could lift me as if i were a sawdust doll old friend oh old friend what a son my son and jack's ought to have been she leans upon the gate minchin but 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 it didn't please providence to send you a son lady castlejordan beating the gate oh oh minchin come come do learn to view the matter resignedly lady Castle Jordan. girls girls mention it's an old story now lady castle jordan girls mention why despise girls many people like girls bless my heart i like girls lady castle jordan you can recall Noeline's arrival i was sure she was going to be a boy so was jack i knew it so did jack the child was to have been christened noel jack's second name mention yes i was up at the hall that night smoking with castle jordan to keep him quiet lady castle jordan poor dear i remember his bending over me afterwards and whispering damn it miriam you've lost a whole season's hunting for nothing then the second mention lady wilhelmina lady castle jordan yes billy came next jack wouldn't speak to me for a couple of months after that the only fallout we ever had mentioned but your third lady thomasine lady castle jordan dearest tommy oh by that time jack and i had agreed to regard anything that was born to us as a boy and to treat it accordingly and for the rest of his life my husband taught our three children there never was another to ride fish shoot swim fence fight wrestle throw run jump until they were as hardy as indians and their muscles burst the sleeves of their jackets and when jack went i continued their old training of course i i recognize my boys little deficiencies but i'm making the best of the great disappointment of my life and i well call me the eccentric lady castle jordan what do i care she sits wiping her eyes there is an undercurrent of tenderness and sympathy beneath the light tone there is evidence in every line that the writer of it understands the hidden tragedies of men's and women's lives and is set upon creating character not merely upon scratching a little from off-the-surface aspect of things the three amazons themselves are cleverly distinguished noeline the average nice young woman wilhelmina the embodiment of all that is essentially feminine thomasine the delightful tomboy whose mannishness never swaggers itself into vulgarity the three men are capitally drawn to though lord teenways strains a little one's belief with his family pride even in the ailments that have been transmitted to him from the generations of his race who have made history as he was played by mr weedon grossmith it was impossible to do anything but laugh at the ridiculous lordling but in the printed book he seems a trifle overdrawn Andre de grievel is now and then just a shade too much the stage frenchman but then a frenchman freshly observed and faithfully presented might be resented by the majority of playgoers as untrue to their ideas altogether the amazons is a piece full of entertainment and charm and as i said above a piece that strikes two or three notes of a deeper tone than we find in any of the other plays in mr pinero's category of farce to sum up in a few words the qualities that give these farces their special merit are the substantial reality of the character drawing not of the central figures alone but many of the subordinate characters as well the natural manner in which the plots and situations arise out of the idiosyncrasies of the people the easy humor and wit of the dialogue they are not valuable as pictures of the manners of the time as the way of the world is valuable and the school for scandal and in a sense robertson's more sincere comedies they contain indeed little enough social observation their milieu is the accepted land of theatrical make-believe where people behave as an average audience likes to think it behaves itself they will scarcely live then as congreve and sheridan's plays live but they will not be willingly let die at any rate by this generation End of section four.